Turn in your Bibles. We're in chapter 2 of 1 Timothy, where Paul has begun to address the, uh, really the main point, how believers are to conduct themselves in the house of God, which is the church of the living God. And the focus, of course, um, is on public worship, on our corporate gatherings. It is our conduct in the house, um, wherever that may be. But any house where believers meet, that can be considered the church of the living God. This is the Heath Hall, and whatever event takes place throughout the week, it's those events. But on Sundays between 3 and 5, it's His house because believers are here, the church of the living God. We're always His church no matter where we meet. And last week, we saw that the top priority of the church was, well, what you just witnessed here, prayer. That we should be a church of prayer. The early church was born out of prayer and continued steadfastly in prayer Prayer is a major part, not only of our individual lives as believers, but of the corporate worship of the church. And Paul is now going on to address the specific conduct of men and women in public worship. And rather than give a lengthy introduction to the passage, I'm going to read it first, and then you'll see why I have chosen to do that, because I'm going to talk about it afterwards. We're looking at verses 8 through 15 of chapter 2. Just follow along as I read. I desire therefore that the men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting, in like manner also that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly or that is proper for women, professing godliness with good works. Let a woman learn in silence with all submission. And I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was uh, being deceived, fell into transgression. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control." What Paul says here and um, in 1 Corinthians 14 is, uh, is completely contrary to our culture today. When you read a, a passage like this in Scripture, if the world were to open up the Bible and read this passage, they would deem it sexist, chauvinistic. Uh, ever since the first feminist movement, they came in waves, as I'm sure many of you know, came about in 1840. The Bible was seen as the primary obstacle to the progress of women, and so the Bible was the, uh, the item of their attack, the target. But the truth of the matter is, is that the gospel uh, emancipated women. It was the culture of the day that demeaned women. And God used men like Paul, who wrote this, to show that while there is a distinction in roles, there is no distinction in spiritual life, there's no distinction in essence or worth, no distinction in intellect, mind, will, emotion, ability, or capacity in terms of what women can accomplish in men. There is only a distinction in role. It's not a question of characteristics or capability or competence, but it's about God's design for men and women. Generally, people want to have God's blessings in life, but God's blessings only come when we align ourselves according to His created order, His divine design. And let me add that Satan loves nothing more than upsetting the divinely created order. And all you have to do is look around at what's happening in the world today, and that is blatantly clear. It began in the garden, of course, but it continues today. The main issue our world is dealing with right now is a rejection of God's design. Not only is marriage no longer between a man and a woman, that's God's divine design. You can determine what gender you want to be or if you're no gender at all. You can be your own God because you are your own creation. But there's no distinction in roles today. 
you, you hear about it. People saying such absolutely ridiculous things like uh, men can get pregnant. There's no distinction in roles. And because there's no distinction in roles, there's no distinction in purpose. And because there's no distinction in purpose, consequently, and what we're seeing in the world today, there's really no true lasting fulfillment. People are in desperate need of hope today. And they're just spiraling more and more out of control. Desperately need of hope. God created men and women with unique roles. And many of those roles were meant to be just obvious. And in those roles, when we align ourselves under those divinely created roles, we find true and lasting fulfillment. And I would add the divine blessing that we would all say we would seek. Now, before we dig into this passage, obviously there's, there's a lot in here. I want to begin with a reminder that, that all Christians are called to exhibit humility and mutual submission. The world would see thing, these things, humility and, and submission, as, as weaknesses. That's the world's point of view on those things. But that is yet another distortion of God's design. And I want to remind you of a couple passages. Jesus said these things in Mark chapter 9, verse 35. He says, if anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Now, this is certainly inverse from the world's philosophy, isn't it? It's a battle for the top. But in God's economy, it's a battle for the bottom, and hopefully it's not actually a battle. The world fights to be at the top, but we should seek to be last of all. And in doing so, in, in God's view, we're first in his kingdom. Jesus was telling a parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, and he, he said this in Luke 18, 14, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And so humility is the pathway to the top, to exaltation. Humility is the fundamental character trait of a believer in Jesus Christ. And it is with a humble spirit that we are able to accept the S-word, submission, as we see it in Scripture. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 5 to 6, speaks of submission by all of us. It says, likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. You see, we're to be submissive to one another. In Ephesians 5, the great passage about the, the woman's submission to man, it begins in 521 with submitting to one another in the fear of God. And of course, all we really need to do as Christians is to look to the divine example of Christ, who is the example of humility. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 8 says, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And that section, as you begin, it says, let this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus. That's having the mind of Christ. And so when we come to passages like this, we are in extra need of a spirit of humility. We really are, folks. Because the world is screaming one thing, but Bible, the Bible and God's Word it declares something completely different. And we must have a desire to align ourselves with God's design so as we prepare to dig into this passage, I'm going to share a couple of things. As I was preparing to study this week, my intention was to cover the whole section that I just read, 8 to 15. And I even put it sort of as a joke out to the elders um, on the WhatsApp group. We have our own WhatsApp group, and I put out there uh, specifically verses 11 and 12. Let a woman learn in silence with all some, you know, those really favorite verses. Uh, I put those on the WhatsApp group and said, anyone want to teach this weekend? To which Dave Farnham said, maybe we get a guest speaker. <laughs> Rob Hall said, I'm doing my hair. <laughs> and Reese was my favorite, said, well, maybe your wife can teach that passage. <laughs> the point is, you need to pray for your elders, folks. That's the <laughs> word desperate need. But as I began to study and go through this, I will tell you, there is so much battling that goes over this passage. I, it's no surprise to me. Is it to you? 
most passages we can go through and just teach and everyone's okay. And you come to this and everyone loses their minds. <laughs> they do. And, um, and most things that I read absolutely gloss over verse 8 and run right on to the, all the stuff that talks about the women. And as I began to study, I found myself five pages in and I was still talking about the men. Because I don't think we should gloss over it. With what Paul begins with here is actually a huge challenge to the men. And so, man, I'm going to be talking to you today. Ladies, you can actually rest and go, oh, okay, we're not covering 9 to 15 till next week. I know some of you are going, great holiday. I, I do want to encourage you, if you want to go with the tide of the culture, with the tide of society, miss next week. But if you want to align yourself with God's design, would you come? Just encourage you to see what, what does God's word say about these things. But even as I speak to them in today, ladies, it's not an opportunity to check out because what we're speaking about is applicable to all of us. As we're speaking overall about holy living, living holy lives, which is for all of us. And so if uh, ladies, you're married in here and you're listening to this, I want you to think with ears for yourself, first of all. But as I directly address men, I want you to think about ways in which you can come alongside your husband and support him in this. If you're not married, I want you to think about ways that you can support and encourage our, our men in the church towards holy living, because that is what Paul wants to see first and foremost. And so what we're looking at here is is really a whole section about holy living for men and women in the public worship as we gather together. And the first point that we'll see here from verse 8 is the proper posture of the men. There is a spiritual posture that we should seek for ourselves, men. And verse 8, just to reiterate this, it says this. Let me read it, and then I'll ask for the Lord's blessing on our time. It says this, I desire, therefore, that the men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. Let me pray. Oh, Lord, we, are a, we want to know you today. We want to know your will for us. We want to seek your, your reason for giving us these words. Your word says that all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And that means even difficult sections like this. I think a lot of churches would, would, would just choose to kind of pass by this section and move on. I think we want to be faithful to your word. We want to study every sentence of it. We want to know your will for our lives. And so, Lord, as I speak, Lord, about the men today, I just, I just pray for your men here that their hearts would be open to maybe what you particularly would be speaking to them about. Lord, I pray for our women, as much of this will be applicable to them as well and to every one of us. But I pray that they would have soft hearts, soft hearts for their husbands, soft hearts for the other men in this church, Lord, and soft hearts for themselves. We need your Spirit's guidance into truth today. We need the illumination of truth and pray that you would be with us to guide us into truth that it would be for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, we're looking at the proper posture of the man. In verse 8, he, he begins by saying, I desire. And remember back in verse 4, we saw a very similar phrase, that God desires that all men are to be saved. God desires all men to be saved. And I didn't discuss the particular usage of the word desire back then, because I knew I'd be getting to it today. But that word in verse um, 4, God desires all men to be saved, was thela, which means to wish. Um, but here in verse 8, Paul uses a different word. God does desire all men to be saved, but obviously not all men will be saved. So it's not uh, an expression of his will or his intent or his purpose. He just wishes that. That's his heart's desire. Paul could have used the same word here, but he doesn't. He uses a different word, which is bulamai. And this word is to will it, to purpose it, to intend it. And if, if Paul wanted 
to express that God wills and intends and purposes and plans every person's salvation, he would have used that word there. He doesn't, but he uses it here. Meaning this, this is apostolic authority. This is not just Paul's, oh, it's, it's just my wish. Oh, I just, I'd love to see this. God wants to see this in the church. I desire therefore, remember therefore is to point us back to the previous section, which we discussed last week, which is about the priority of prayer in the church. Prayer for the lost in particular, which reflects the heart of God, who desires that all men be saved, right? But he also says, I desire therefore here that the men pray. And the word men is a generic term meaning males, okay? So he is speaking to the men. Men are meant to be leading in the corporate worship of God's people. And leading in particular in the area of prayer, but the posture of it the inner attitude of it. And so first of all, the first point here is the men of the church should be prayerful men. If prayer is the top priority of the church, the chief spiritual exercise of the church, then men should lead the way when it comes to prayer. And you might ask, well, why the men? Why the men? Why males? What is the, what is the thing? What does Paul have against uh, women? Well, nothing. As I said earlier, men and women were perfectly equal, completely. Yet there is a distinction in the roles which they are to fill, to fulfill according to God's design. Male leadership is not about power. And so men, take that note. It isn't. It's about responsibility. The men are responsible for the spiritual direction of God's church. Yes, he wants the priority to be prayer in the church, but men, we must take the primary role of leading our people to the throne room of God. And the way we go there is quite amazing as Paul unfolds this for us. But I just want to give you an example here that this is not something coming off the cuff. This is not something coming out of the blue. Male leadership is seen all the way throughout the scripture, beginning in the garden. Adam was created first. He was given a helper he was given Eve to help him fulfill his role. He was given headship over his wife. You follow along as you read through, you come across the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, men who would begin to lead the, and begin the young nation of Israel on until we come across Moses and his successor, Joshua. You get to the book of the Judges, and all the judges are men that God has raised up, and then someone's going to jump up and say, hold on, there was Deborah, there was one woman, and that's usually where we go to. Deborah was a prophetess, but she would not do the mission God had given her unless Barak took the reins and led it, because she knew that was the role of the men. And I remind you as well that the book of Judges is a book in which everyone did what was right in their own eyes. It's not a book that's an example to follow. You follow Samuel and the prophet Samuel anointing the kings, David, Saul and David and Solomon and all the northern and southern kings of men who would lead the people. You see that the Levitical priesthood was made up of men. The Old Testament major and minor prophets were all men. And Jesus, a man, he could have come to earth as a woman, I suppose. He didn't. There's a divine model here. He came as a man. And he chose 12 men that would be his followers and be his disciples. And when Judas committed suicide and went and hung himself, the remaining 11 men chose another man, Matthias, to replace Judas. And when the resurrected Jesus Christ chose someone to go and take the gospel to the Gentiles, he chose Paul, another man. And Paul chose men to be his traveling companions. That would be his men. He would go to the different churches and plant, and he would be there. They would be apostolic delegates like Timothy, like we're discussing today. Paul established male elders as leaders in the church, as we'll even begin to see in chapter 3. And you can take this all the way to the book of Revelation, in the throne room of God, surrounded by 24 elders of the church. It is just by God's design that men be leaders, that they be leaders in their homes. Ephesians 6, 4 says, and you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, 
but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. You know a sure way to bring your children to wrath, to provoke them to wrath? Don't lead. Leave them to it. Stay out of the game. Come home and kick up your feet. You provoke your children to wrath. He's called us to lead in the home. Men are to take the initiative in the spiritual upbringing and growth of their children. Men are to be leaders of their wives. Ephesians 5, 22 and 23 says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. But then it goes on to say, Husbands, here's how you do this, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. You know, you must love your wife in such a way that she, her sanctification is spurred on forward. Her sanctification goes forward without hindrance because of the love and the grace that you have for her. And we're to be leaders of the church, as we see here, chapter 3 as well, Titus chapter 1, and basically all the book of Acts. The church, the corporate gathering, is what's in view here. And we know this because of this phrase that we see here. It's, I think it's just translated as one word in our passage. It says, I desire, therefore, that the men pray everywhere. But everywhere is actually a phrase. It's in every place. It's a phrase Paul uses four, uh, four times, so three other places he uses that phrase. And every single time he uses that phrase, he's speaking to the corporate gathering of the church. For the sake of time, I'll just give you one example in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2. He says, to the church of God, so he's speaking to the church which is at Corinth, to, the, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints who all, with all who in every place or everywhere call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours, to every church. When the church gathers for corporate worship and prayer, it's the men who are meant to be the leaders in this area. And let's just face it, this seems to be largely backwards. I don't think that's the case in this church because... There's been a particular emphasis on raising up godly men, Amen. and they're doing a great job. I love our men. But by and large, you go to other churches, it's women who are more faithful in church attendance. It's women who are more faithful in, in serving in the church. It's women who are more faithful in, in, in prayer, and that needs to change. Men need to begin to, to lead the way in those areas in the churches. But it's not just the, this outward things. The, it's the inward posture of prayer that, that really he's mostly concerned about here. And as we looked at last week, prayer is a privilege. It's a privilege that's um, designed to be pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. He said that back in verse 4. And so, yes, we're to bring, we're to bring supplications, we're to bring intercessions, we're to, to bring all these things to God, but the manner in which we do must be pleasing to Him, which I think the implication is that there might be some prayer that's not so pleasing to God. And I think the point that we made last week pretty clearly was when we see that that passage exhorts us to pray for kings and for all who are in authority, right? That requires a proper posture, doesn't it? That requires an attitude of humility. That requires um, that we be free from self-righteousness, free from anger, free from, from hate. So Paul here is addressing the men first, that they would lead the way in this, in this area of, of inner attitude. They should be the ones providing the examples for the rest to follow. The proper posture of men that are, that are men of God. He says men should pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands. Now you might have noticed we sang some songs about lifting our holy hands. And maybe some of you are new to that. Maybe you just think that's weird. Why do people lift their hands when they, and they sing? What's the deal with that? Well, some of us are doing it during the singing of worship, and that's an appropriate place to do that. It's biblical. I'll show you that in a minute. But I even noticed last week as I was up here at the end to pray for people, some people were holding their hands up in prayer. Well, prayer is worship too. Perfectly acceptable act there. The lifting up of hands was a common Old Testament practice. And I just want to show you really quickly that it seemed to signify different attitudes of the heart, lifting up our hands. And certainly one is the worshipful heart give you an example in Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 6. It says this, And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and then all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. It's an act of a worship. We're, we're, God, is, 
God is in this room. His spirit is amongst us, but we also know that God is in heaven. He dwells there. And so I think a lot of times we're just sort of like, I just want to get as close as I can to God. So I'm going to lift my hands to him in worship. Psalm 63 verse 4 says, thus I will bless you while I live. I will lift up my hands in your name. So lift up your hands in worship. It's a worshipful heart by, by, um, that's inside when our hands are lifted on the outside, hopefully. Hopefully that's the case. Hopefully for you, it's not just an outward thing. It's meant to be inward. It's also seen as a sacrificial heart. It's so, it shows a sacrificial heart. Psalm 141 verse 2 says, Let my prayer be set before you as incense, the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. It's just a sacrifice to you. God, I, have, I, just want to give, I just want to give to you because of all that you've given to me. It shows a penitent heart. You might remember after the people had been sent into exile and they came back, they intermarried, and Ezra learned about it and he was very upset about it. And so he was confessing to God about the sins of the people. And he said this in Ezra 9, 5, at the evening sacrifice, I arose from my fasting and having torn my garment and my robe, I fell on my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God. He was penitent. He was repentant, praying to God, forgive them. And also reflects a dependent heart. Psalm 28, verse 2 says, Hear the voice of my supplications. When I cry to you, when I lift up my hands toward your holy sanctuary, saying, God, I need you. It just shows the inner attitudes of the heart. It's a beautiful thing. He says, men, I want you to be the ones, not just outwardly lifting your hands, but what's the attitude of your heart? Is it a penitent heart? Is it a sacrificial heart? Is it a worshipful heart? Are, are you dependent? Are you showing your dependence upon God? That's the heart attitude Paul was concerned with. But specifically here, he had one particular heart attitude he was concerned with. It says lifting up holy hands. Holy hands. He was concerned that the men first and foremost have holy hands. And so, not only should the men be prayerful men, but they sh should be pure men. Now, none of the men in this room are without sin. None of the women in this room are without sin. So in that regard, no one is pure. But as men are to lead the way in prayer, then a prerequisite for an effective prayer life is a holy life, which is really what Paul is getting at here. It's not the outward act of prayer so much that Paul is concerned with, but the inward attitude of the heart, which is reflected through a holy life. The word holy is hasios, and it means undefiled by sin, free from wickedness. It signifies religiously right and holy as opposed to what's polluted, what's, what's unrighteous. It's used eight times in the New Testament. It's also in Titus chapter 1, verse 8 referring to the qualifications of an elder, of a leader in the church. And so the men of the church, the elders of the church, are to be holy in the activities of their lives and the attitudes of their hearts. The activities and the attitudes. I think this can be seen in Psalm 24, verses 3 to 4. It says, Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord, or who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. The activities are our lives clean hands, attitude of our heart, pure heart. Our hands must be clean, the activities we participate in. Our hearts must be pure, our thoughts and our attitudes. And when I read about that, I really thought, you know, this is the new man that's described in Colossians chapter 3. And so I'd like to take you there. Obviously, keep your finger in 1 Timothy. We'll come back to it. But we had a section of scripture read to us earlier from Colossians. But look, Colossians chapter 3, I just want you to take a look here. It's such a wonderful, marvelous section of Scripture. And here we see a comparison, basically, between the new man and the old man. And he first begins with the um, discussion, really, of the, the new man going into the old man, and then kind of back to the new man. But in verse 1, it says this, If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. 
Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. But now you yourselves are to put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language, out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old man with his deeds. What a marvelous passage, a reminder that you've been raised with Christ. You've been crucified with Christ. It's, you know, it's not you who lives, right? It's Christ who lives in you. You've been raised with him, so seek the things that are above. And then he goes into a very practical application. You have this old man with his deeds, his members, and you need to put that off because you've been made new. There's a new man that you can put on. And I think when I look at this, the new man is the man who has put off the things that are earthly, but I think we're good at limiting that. We can look at this list, and we can see some things here. And I even mentioned this um, uh, concept even when I was visiting um, Clear Spring Church a few weeks ago. We can look at that list and say, oh, yes, I, I have put off the old man. I have put off fornication, but maybe not weekly glances at pornography. Oh, I have put off, I put off blasphemy, filthy language, but maybe not a deceptive mouth, maybe not gossip. Maybe not slander. Oh, I've put off covetousness, a, a, a desire for wealth or riches, but maybe not a fear of poverty. But see, the new man must put off all of these things and instead put on the new man. And look at verse 10, verse 10 of Colossians 3, and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. We must put on the new man, which is, the image of Christ, its holiness. And we do that by putting off the old things, all of them. And men, we're, calling, we're called here to be the examples of the new man. We can't be dabbling with those things in our lives. If we're not leading in the area of holy living, think about this, then our prayers, they're not even heard. I have heard some pretty amazing prayers. I've been in rooms where men prayed prayers. I thought, wow, that is just like that, I thought, he, mu he must have wrote that down and memorized it or something, because that was just, whoo, you know? But then you, you might hear about their life and what they're embroiled in and what's really going on, and I thought, oh, okay. So then that prayer actually never left the room. It didn't go past the ceiling. It's just, it's just words. Psalm 66, 18 says, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear he won't even hear our prayers. In fact, in 1 Peter 3, 7, if a married man is not living with his wife in an understanding way, not giving honor to her, he says, your prayers are hindered. You're going to treat my daughter that way? Then I'm going to treat you the same way. I won't even listen to you. But you contrast that with the prayer of a righteous man in James 5, 16. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails what? Much. Yes. Oh, I hear the prayers of the righteous. And I think that it's interesting that when you look at this list of old man deeds from Colossians 3, we find a couple of words here in um, verse 8. But now you yourselves are to put off all these. Anger and wrath, he puts there. Anger and wrath. Two words are used here. The two words are actually different words in the Greek. Anger is orge and wrath is thumos. It's important to look at these two because Paul uses one of those two words in our passage in 1 Timothy, which we're now going to go back to. But thumos is a hot anger. It's passion. It's, it's a, a fierceness. Orge, which is originally meant any kind of natural impulse or desire, something that's naturally in there or disposition. And it came to, to refer to and signify anger because anger was the strongest of all the passions. Thumos, which is often translated wrath, it's to be distinguished from orge. It's different. Thumos indicates a more agitated condition of the feeling. So it's an outburst. It's an outburst of, of wrath from um, inward indignation. But orge suggests a more settled or abiding condition of the mind. Orge is, is less sudden in its rise than thumos, but it's more lasting in its nature. That's how it's used. 
Thumas is, expresses an inward feeling, but, but orge is the uh, more active emotion. And, I, and both of these words are used together. They're coupled together two times in Revelation. And both times in Revelation, they are virtually the same sentence, the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. Fierceness, thumos of the wrath, orge of Almighty God. You can see that. It's the outward expression of the inward emotion. Outward outbursts of wrath that rises from inward active emotion. I want to ask you, which of these two words do you think Paul used? Go back to our passage in verse 8. It says, I desire therefore that the men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath. It's actually orge. Actually, it's orge. It's not about just an emotional outburst. This is the condition of the mind. This is an active emotion. And I thought, you know, Paul could just about pick anything to talk to the men about. I could just think of like 50 things. But he talks about anger. That's where he goes. Anger. Men who are leading in holiness, who are the example of others to follow into the throne room of God to live holy lives, cannot be men whose inward settled condition, whose active emotion is one of anger. It cannot be. And so lastly, lastly here, we see that we are to be peaceful men, prayerful men, pure men, and peaceful men. In fact, Paul couples the word orge with another word you see here. He says, and doubting. This word, doubting, is actually... It's not the best rendering in the New King James. In fact, just about any other version you have has a better rendering. Look at the most translations render it these different ways you see here. Quarreling, disputing, dissension, argument, controversy, which fits better because of the context coupled with anger. His whole point is this, that, that, men, the, the, that these men can be characterized by their propensity toward anger and, and arguments and quarreling and controversy. They can't be men like that. They must be men of peace. And I do think that a lot of men have a problem with anger. I've spoken about anger before, but I've really only made passing comments on it. But I really want to see if I can't help make you understand why Paul selects anger out of everything. Why is that the primary thing uh, to avoid? The, the primary sort of disqualification, if you will. Here's why. Anger is always a moral matter. It's, it's been called the, the moral emotion. It's never a neutral thing. The world will say that. The world will say, well, anger, it just is. It just is. And so therefore, you must just um, let it come out. It's something that just is. It has no origin. It just is. Well, I want to demonstrate that that's false, and I want to do it in two ways, okay? First, I want you to see this, that anger evaluates. That's how it's a moral emotion. It, it, it evaluates. It takes something or someone, it weighs it in a balance, it evaluates it, it finds it lacking in some way, displeasing in some way, wrong in some way, and then you're moved to take action. You're moved in, 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 in emotion, in action against that thing. It, it is a person who says, I care enough about this thing to be moved. You've moved me to emotion. I care about it so much. They've evaluated something as a perceived wrong, okay, perceived wrong, and they feel so strongly about it, they've got to take some action against it. So in other words, anger judges. That's what anger does. So it is an outward display of anger is seen many times in, in heated emotion, a raised voice, um, hostile attitude, accusatory words. It's the emotionally aroused form of judgment against a perceived evil. I found one quote. The emotionally aroused form of judgment against a perceived evil. It has evaluated something as deserving of judgment. We have a neighbor across the street, many of you have been in our neighborhood before, who screams at his wife and kids. You, you can't help but hear it. Screams at him. What is he doing there? Well, he has judged that they have done something wrong in some way. They have violated his moral compass and they are deserving of his judgment. And so I'm meeting out judgment upon you. 
you understand how this works because you um, certainly have dealt with it yourself, driving a car. <laughs> and someone cuts you off and pulls into your lane. And there's an emotion that comes out right away. Why? Because I deserve to be treated with respect. And by the way, this is my lane. <laughs> no one comes into my lane. Isn't it silly? We, we get angry about the silly things. Anger over um, messed up food order. And boy, we can show attitude against people bringing our food. Is it, is it that important? Was, was there a moral violation that took place here? I said, no poppy seeds, and these are clearly poppy seeds. We can get angry about the wrong things. And so we must first ask ourselves this question, am I judging, evaluating rightly? The reason you must ask yourself that question is because uh, God does that, by the way. Which is the second thing I want to show you. Not only does anger evaluate, but anger itself is evaluated. God is evaluating why you're angry, what you're angry at. God judges our judging. When we perceive that a wrong has been done, God morally evaluates every instance of our anger. And he looks at that and says, okay, did you perceive good or evil accurately? And then did you react to that perceived good or evil in a godly way? So men, when you're at home and you're relaxing from a hard day's work and you've kicked up your feet and you're watching the, the, the ball game on the telly and your child loudly enters a room uh, playing and disrupting your peace and solitude and you react by raising your voice and yelling at your child, God evaluates your criterion for your judging the way that you did. And he looks at your criterion and says, that was wrong and the way you reacted was wrong. You had no moral right to act the way you did. But in your kingdom, you did. I deserve peace and quiet. That's my right. We all, we all have gone there. How about this? You might go to work and find that they've decorated the office for Pride Month and you get angry and you begin to curse out your coworkers and you speak evil against them. God will first evaluate your criteria for judgment. Pride Month and all that it promotes and accompanies is a wrong against God. So your reason for anger is actually right. But your reaction is wrong. This is how God evaluates our anger. And then if I'm honest, many times we get angry because of the distorted beliefs, the cravings, the expectations that we've allowed to rule our hearts rather than allow God to rule. And we get angry about the wrong things and we react the wrong way. But I also think this, and I've witnessed this, that anger for a man is an easy manipulation tool. We somehow have been deceived into believing that a raised voice, a show of force, will get us the respect we think we deserve from our kids or the affection we think we desire, deserve from our wives. Respect is never given through demands. It is earned. The neighbor across the street, I mentioned, he's a, a man of wrath. He has an angry disposition. And that's because he, he has perceptions that have been distorted by evil cravings of his own heart. And so that reflects his moral standards reflects all of our moral standards. They're, they're askew. They're wrong. And ultimately, people that are constantly angry, their concern is for self rather than God or others. You see how we can easily just glance over this verse? There's so much more here when we actually understand what he's talking about. Men are be, to be leaders in the house of God and the church of the living God. And so when it comes to our public worship, we need men who are committed to holy living. If you struggled with anger as a man or even as a woman, if you've been unsure of how to help your husband through anger, or if you as a woman are struggling with anger, I want to give you some steps that you can take. The world, as I mentioned, will say anger just is, or go take some anger management courses. You can go to anger management courses. You might have it under control for a while, but it will come back because you haven't hit the root. <laughs> So point one is this, you need to follow anger to the source. That's what you're looking for, the source of anger. There is a source to it, and you need to identify the opposed desires. 
And when I say opposed desires, meaning thwarted desires, desires that you felt you deserved and you didn't get it. People oppose your desire for peace. They oppose your desire for my own lane on the highway. That's what I mean. Identify that opposed desire. Ask yourself, what root desire drives my anger? What is it? You have to identify it. You have to say, what am I really after? What desires are getting opposed? And ask yourself this, are they desires for the glory of God? Are they desires for the dignity of mankind? Or are they selfish desires? Most often than not, if you actually stop and self-evaluate, they're selfish desires. They're things we think we deserve, things we, we think we have to have when we don't. James chapter 4 tells us where wars and fights come from. Where do they come from among you, he says? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight in war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. What are those pleasures? What are those desires that you cannot obtain? Identify them. And number two here, identify the loves and affections of the heart. Fill in this statement. I am angry because I love blank. Be truthful. Why are you angry? I love this. Your anger shows passion for something. So what is it? So a man who blows up at his wife because she turns down his sexual advances loves sexual pleasure more than he loves Christ and certainly more than he loves his wife. A wife who belittles her husband, embarrasses him because he's overdrawn the bank account again or failed to uh, fix the dishwasher as she asked, loves security and ease and comfort more than Christ, more than her husband. We are selfish people. Luke 6, 45 says, A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good, and the evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. It's a matter of the heart, folks. And you want to be free from it, then you've got to identify it. What is driving my desire? And when you do, to acknowledge the source. That's it. What do you do with it? You take it to the cross. You take it to Christ. It's repentance. And I want to ask you to do this. Avoid the temptation to blame shift. You may get to that point, but you'll still go, yeah, but this is what really instigates that. Yeah, but this is really, you need to stop. No, this is the thing. If anger is a problem, anger is a constant thing. It's a condition of your heart and you've got to deal with it. There are plenty of examples of men in scripture that blame shift. Cain, right? Cain was one, wasn't he? He denied his wrongdoing. He was apathetic to it. Jonah was self-justifying just, himself, wasn't he? Blame shifting and accept the solution, which is repentance. And repentance means you call it what it is. You say, you know what? This is sin in my life. Sinful desires of the heart that belong to our old man and they need to be replaced by the desires of Christ's heart that come with the new man. And so salvation is such a beautiful thing. And we, we come to, to church fellowship and we hear the gospel and we hear God's word, but I think many times we fail to penetrate to heart things, which is why I, I take the time to do that. And so guys, I'm not picking on you, but I do want, I do want to see this church so full of holy men that love the Lord, that I know that the only way to that path is to admit those things, is to take them to the Lord. And so many men, maybe not here, um, succumb to, to anger. And so this is what I've asked um, some of our elders to do, to come up here while the last song is, is played, to ask men to come forward for prayer. And I know you might think, you might think, well, if I come up for prayer, everyone's going to go, well, that guy has a problem with anger. <laughs> Listen, I don't want you coming up for prayer just because I focus on the anger at the end here. This is about holy living and men who desire to live that way. 
whatever it might be, whatever's going on in your life, man, we need prayer, right? The elders, we get together because we need prayer. We have to encourage one another. We still have the sinful flesh. And so as this song is sung, listen, men, I want to encourage you to come forward and, and pray. I, I don't want to stand here alone, <laughs> but I want to pray with you. It could be simply, listen, you know what? I, I, I want to, I just want prayer, you know? I want prayer for my thought life. I, I want prayer for this, or I want prayer for that. It doesn't have to be about anger. And listen, no one in this room is going to be judging you because you came forward and asked for prayer. We all need it. In fact, what we should have is a line out the door, and we should call the people to the street, like, come on, prayer's happening here. Man, we should desire prayer simply because we just want to be the holy men Scripture calls for. Holy men lifting up holy hands without anger, without attitudes of the heart that keep us from God, that allow us to lead our people to the throne of grace. Amen? Yeah. Let me close in prayer, and then the, the worship team will come up. And as we're singing the song, feel free to come up and pray with myself or one of the elders. God, thank you so much for your word to us today, and I thank you for slowing me down this week, <laughs> rushing to get to the, the tough passages and instead saying, no, I want you to talk to our men. Look at verse 8. It speaks to the heart attitude of those that should be leading the church, which, which is men. Lord, you've called, you've called us to be the examples in our homes. You've called us to be the examples in society, and you've called us to be examples here in the church. And so, Lord, just pray for the men in this room today. Lord, I love them. And I'm so grateful for just what I've seen in, in many of their lives, the growth, the love for Christ. Lord, but yet we, we all could use more growth. We all could use more encouragement. We could use more prayer. And maybe if you're new with us today and you're not sure, I, I just want to encourage you, come up for prayer. Just, just, just come on up. I'd be happy to pray with you. And you don't even need to utter what you want prayer for. We'll just pray, pray for you because the beautiful thing is, is that the Spirit knows exactly what you need and intercedes for you. We love you. We love you, men. We want to pray for you. And Lord, we love you. We thank you for being the divine example of humility, an example of one who needed prayer, who went to his father in a secluded place and prayed often. What an example you are. May you be glorified, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.